Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. It's a long-held myth that credible climate scientists should be devoid of human emotion, presenting our work rationally without commentary. Perhaps it's part of the reason why the public discussion around climate change has been so dominated by the political right right across the developed world. The environmental, social and cultural costs of capitalism have been dismissed in the name of economic progress for far, far too long. Given that humanity is now facing an existential threat of planetary proportions and scientists are the people who really know exactly what's at stake, shouldn't that logically include acknowledging our sense of despair anger, grief, and frustration? Why are medical doctors praised for a good bedside manner while climate scientists are dismissed as alarmist if we express our deep concern about the state of the world? Would anyone ridicule an intensive care nurse for feeling distressed if someone in their care died on their watch? Is it possible to witness the death of the Great Barrier Reef, the largest living organism on the planet, and not feel wild with the desperation at the thought of it all? Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Dr. Joelle Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer at the Australian National University. She served as a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, and is also the author of Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. Today, I'm talking to Joelle Gerges about her new book, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. Joelle, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. At high school, you say you began to develop an interest in science, but I'm wondering what was the catalyst, the fork in the road, as you call it, for your detour into climate science? Well, when I was growing up, uh, I was in high school and there was um, a really severe bushfire that came through in the January of 1994. And I remember being terrified as a young person and just seeing this sort of confetti of ash and, and burnt leaves just sort of blowing into my neighbourhood. And I really felt that there's such a ferocity uh, in Australian climate. And so I was really interested to see how weather and climate extremes uh, influence people's daily lives. And, and so I was um, really interested in geography. So I was really interested in the physical systems that sort of govern the planet. But I was also interested in culture and society as well. Uh, and so that was really the beginning of it, I guess. And then I went on to, um, to study science at university. Um, where I really took all the climate subjects that were on offer, um, that I had a real passion for wanting to understand how climate influences uh, humans. You're now one of the lead authors for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the reports that are produced by that panel. First of all, if this can be reduced to a simple answer, but what is the methodology? How is that data collated and corroborated? And uh, how are the conclusions drawn? And also, how are they expressed and communicated to the public. The United Nations have been compiling these global reports of the state of climate change uh, since 1990. So I was involved in the sixth assessment report, which began to be released in 2021. And effectively what happens is every seven years, um, a whole range of scientists uh, nominated by governments um, of the world. Uh, and it's a UN process. So there were over a thousand people um, put forward and then about 200 people get selected to represent their, their country. There's about 200 lead authors. 12 of us were from Australia in working group one, which deals with the physical science. 
And our job is to effectively read thousands of different um, research articles. So all the different science that's come about since the the previous report, condense that down into a really sort of -of state-of-the-art summary of, um, of the findings. And it's a really, really detailed process because obviously we're considering uh, evidence from all over the world, being a United Nations process, we're looking at every single part of the world. And, and effectively, it's, it's really looking at the weight of evidence. So if we had, for instance, only three studies having a particular conclusion, that will probably be put forward as a finding with low confidence. But if we have, say, hundreds of studies that are showing a particular result, then we have high confidence. So it effectively is this um, document which is trying to distill the state of the planetary system but it's, it, it really does acknowledge that not all of our evidence is equal in terms of just there might be an area that's uh, still developing. So the, the cutting edge areas of science still have few studies. That's not to say the science isn't solid, but because we might not have tons and tons of uh, papers on, that, on those topics, um, we, we can't put it forward with, with high confidence. And so that's why people sometimes criticise the IPCC as being a really conservative body, but I kind of reject those uh, critiques because it, it really is just an evidence-based assessment of the global climate system. So our job is really just to assess and distill that information and put it forward with real uh, care taken in terms of trying to understand the uncertainty that's involved in science because it is such a vast and complex topic, but also understanding that it's an evolving field and we don't have every single piece of the jigsaw puzzle in front of us. Joelle, we hear about the IPCC reports being issued and the responses from government or lack of response, as the case may be. But is the IPCC report itself something that the general public might be able to comprehend or is it beyond the capacity of most people? Look, to be honest, it's a, it's a very, very um, challenging document to read, even though our remit is to try and produce something that is for uh, policymakers um, and so people who aren't experts in science. But invariably, because it's such a technical area and because the people that write these reports, we're all research scientists by and large, um, it is a pretty dense document. I'm not going to deny it. And, for instance, in the um, the volume I was involved in, each chapter is around about 80,000 words and there's about 12 or 13 chapters. So you're looking at a report of over a million words for just one volume. There are three volumes and then there are another three volumes which are sort of supplementary to the, the actual main assessment report. So as you can see, just the sheer volume of material is very overwhelming. So to be honest, I don't expect that members of the general public would pick up an IPCC report. Many people do pick up uh, the summary for policymakers, which is effectively a very, very distilled uh, down version of the highlights of the report. But again, lots of really important information is often lost and there's some controversy about what is it in those um, summary for policymaker statements and, and what isn't. But just even by, um, as I've just outlined, there's just so much material, it's really, really hard to actually have every single thing in there. So so part of the reason why I actually wrote my book um, was that as I was compiling this information and as, it, as one of the scientists involved in this process, I think the I think it is probably a bit too much to ask the average person to all of a sudden have a degree in climatology and really be able to absorb that. So I felt like it was something that I could offer. The general community is trying to distill it down in the clearest possible way, uh, the highlights of the report, but then also going beyond that because obviously as scientists we can only really um, go so far in terms of describing the the problem Uh, And also we do talk about the solutions, but there's also a really important social and cultural element that 
uh, isn't really covered in the IPCC, but something I wanted to cover, I guess, just as a um, as a human being, right? So, and as a writer. So, um, so my book, I hope, is a really accessible way in for people who are concerned about climate change, but perhaps feeling a little bit intimidated by the science. So, I really have written a book. I really did my best to write a book that was, um, you know, you don't need a science degree to read it. Uh, you don't necessarily have to absorb absolutely everything in it, but I wanted to provide uh, the reader with a reliable account of what the scientific community feels uh, is really important. So the, the real key take homes. Um, so that was what I set out to do, and I, and I hope that um, people I hope people enjoy it. How has the research into climate change evolved, and how has the argument progressed since the first IPCC report in 1990? Well, like many areas of society, science has also undergone a lot of change. So, for instance, the very early uh, computer models were, um, you know, they, they used punch cards instead of using digital computer codes. So it used to take a really long time to be able to run a computer model simulation, whereas now we have supercomputers that do that. The tools that we have at our disposal were just unheard of you know, even back in the 1990s. And so as we've had more and more studies conducted over the years, we've been able to pull together a lot more evidence in terms of um, really compiling evidence from the ice sheets, from the ocean, from land surface um, temperatures, from a whole different range of fields, and, and we're able to pull, pull that, all that information together uh, and be able to really definitively say uh, that, Yes, there's a lot of natural variability in the climate system, but because of human activity from the burning of fossil fuels and the uh, transformation of our um, the Earth's land surface and the cutting down of forests has altered that um, natural balance that we have, that the Earth has in terms of its equilibrium. And so as the science has progressed, there's been a strengthening of evidence that has been made available. But as I said, it can take, it can take years to develop one single scientific study uh, and some work I was involved in during my PhD, it took 20 years to develop a particular record. So just to give you an idea, this is really slow work. But now we're at a point where there, there's just so much evidence that has been compiled that it's now an established fact that humans are altering the climate system and that we've actually impacted uh, every single part of the world, um, which is a, an extraordinary thing to get a grip on because it, it really is this, um, we're living in the age of humans and human modification um, of the earth system and so where, where that leaves us right now is is effectively a destabilizing planet uh, and the evidence is uh, loud and clear and as I said people can read those um, million word volumes if they really want to or they can read a distilled version of it in my book but uh, the scientific community are definitively saying climate change is happening we are causing it and we're now getting to a point where um, natural variability is starting to be altered. So we've always had natural cycles, of course, in the climate system, things like ice ages and so on. But because of the rate of change that we've seen, uh, we're starting to amplify these extremes and we're starting to see a real shift in, in our climate system. I want to take you back to a word you mentioned a second ago, equilibrium, which seems to be at the core of climate change. And something you write there is what really worries scientists is the concept of how sensitive the earth is to establishing its new equilibrium once its balance has been disturbed. It's what you call equilibrium climate sensitivity. What is equilibrium climate sensitivity? Why is it such a concern for scientists? So equilibrium climate sensitivity is effectively talking about when we change 
uh, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? What is the eventual warming we will see as a result of that? And so in the past, there have been a, a, a range of different ways we can calculate that. But because we've got uh, new lines of evidence coming through from geologic records, observations, also theoretical physics, and also using climate model simulations, we now have many different lines of evidence that we can use to see, well, what happens when we have a, a doubling of CO2 um, from pre-industrial levels. And as we've progressed through these different IPCC cycles in the sixth assessment report, which is the one that's just come out, we found that in fact, temperature is a lot more sensitive than we had previously uh, anticipated. So what that effectively means is that we're very likely to be underestimating the level of warming we will eventually uh, see play out in the climate system. And that's of concern because obviously when we do, uh, we, fingers crossed, get to sort of net zero emissions and we, we reduce our emissions, warming will start to stabilise. But where it ends up over the next coming centuries is, is, is really determined by this sensitivity that um, scientists are, are really interested in. So effectively, it's basically saying that we're probably underestimating the sensitivity of temperature to, um, to increases in carbon dioxide. And that's really what concerns people because there might be these surprises that we start to see in the climate system that are not exactly what we expected. But just to add to that, um, it's because the science has continued to evolve and to uh, develop. So it's not like we're hiding anything. It's just that these new lines of evidence have come to light. Uh, and so that is one of the that was one of the big um, messages from this particular report is that we might be actually underestimating this warming that we could be experiencing in the future. In Humanity's Moment, you write that as the climate warms, permafrost will become a source of carbon rather than a carbon sink. Now, that sounds potentially catastrophic, but can you take us through the chemistry that makes that happen? Yeah, okay. So let's go back to the basics. So as I mentioned before, we have these natural cycles of variability. So ice ages have come and gone. And during, um, during ice ages, we tend to see the die-off of lots of vegetation because it's really, really cold. And during warm periods, we see uh, forests expand into polar areas. And then as they die, they get entombed in soil and snow. And effectively, these have become our, um, our cold beds. Our permafrost is effectively just ancient forests. So it's just carbon that's stored, but it's just old vegetation. But as we're starting to see um, these frozen areas of the world uh, start to melt, it starts to release this carbon back into the atmosphere. And that's really of concern because permafrost actually underlays about 25% of the Northern Hemisphere land mass. And, and if all of that was, if all of that carbon was released, uh, it would actually um, contribute twice the amount of carbon that's currently in the atmosphere. So that is what concerns some people. What the IPCC report is saying is that, yes, there are very real dangers with starting to release this permafrost, and we are doing that. Um, but in terms of how bad we let things get, that's still in our hands. So that this is where the Paris Agreement and all of the, um, the policies the governments of the world are enacting becomes absolutely critical. But from the scientific perspective, we're saying this is a bit of a wild card and it's also quite complex to, firstly, to monitor, if you can imagine, we're talking about uh, underground areas that are in very remote places. So just from the observational monitoring point of view, it's really uh, complex science, but also in terms of trying to put that information into a, a climate model. Uh, that's also really difficult. So a lot of the permafrost is not really very much um, accounted for in, in these 
uh, climate models that we use for these future projections. So the, it, it's, it's a real underestimate yet again, because scientists are conservative and science can only really go on uh, the strength of um, the underlying uh, components. So uh, it's a really complex area. And so it is underestimated. But yes, if it becomes, it stops being a carbon sink, so i.e. it is, it's actually storing that carbon for us, when it starts to thaw out and it gets released back into the atmosphere, that's when we start to see what they call a positive feedback loop is that um, methane actually is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. It doesn't, it doesn't stay in the atmosphere for quite as long, but it's, um, it is really important in terms of the sort of warming that we experience on shorter timescales. So it is of great concern to scientists. That's also why I spend quite a bit of time talking about um, talking about it in the book just because I think there's a lot of um, misconception and sometimes um, misunderstanding of the science. It is a very real problem, um, but it isn't just uh, going to, some methane bomb isn't just going to go off tomorrow and we're going to see a complete collapse of the planetary system. No, it's, it's nothing like that. These things take time, but obviously we don't want to destabilise these systems because they're critically important in terms of storing carbon. We and you and that comes through in your book, like to escape to wilderness to refresh and recalibrate. I wonder whether there'll be a time when that's impossible, when the world as we know it and have known it is unrecognisable or no longer exists. Will there be a moment when we can't escape to the wilderness? Well, I certainly hope not. And I guess that's the reason why people like me have put aside my own research to write a book uh, to help the public understand exactly what's at stake. Well, I think... There's so much worth saving, firstly. And because that is still very much in our hands, I'm hoping that this type of book really compels people to do what they can to really be a part of that social movement that we need to change our social and political systems to really start to value these things that we all collectively care about. So I personally don't go to that um, dystopian uh, view of the future because if you stop and think about it, all these beautiful national parks that we, we go and visit, in terms of finding an oasis in this crazy world, um, they exist because people cared enough to protect them. And so there is this intergenerational element uh, that people that have come before us have had the foresight to realise that these are really important places and we've protected them. And now we happen to be the generation that is seeing the destabilisation of the Earth's climate and we need to think about what we want to do about that. And as Australians, we really have so much to lose. As an example, you know, with the black summer bushfires that we experienced in 2019, 2020, we saw around about um, 25% of Australia's forests burn in a single bushfire season. Now we've seen, as a result of that, um, we saw about 3 billion animals either killed or displaced. Uh, and so much habitat has been lost along the East Coast that koalas are now considered endangered. They join the endangered species list. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing to think about. I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. And in places like New South Wales, uh, the koala could become extinct in just 30 years. Now, that's unthinkable to me, um, but that kind of comes back to what we're talking about, which is we can see the impacts, the very dramatic and abrupt impacts of climate change here in this country already, how bad we let things get is still in our hands. And that's why um, I don't think that this sort of fatalistic, we're all doomed, uh, there's nothing we can do attitude is really misguided and really unhelpful at this moment because every single day, every single year that we delay, 
it, it's just going to bake in more and more heat into the system and make the situation a lot worse. It might be that it is terminal and, and there's nothing you can do. The scientific community are not saying that right now. We're saying that things are bad. We've got issues. We need to get on top of this. And the sooner we do that, the better, because we can really try and minimise the degree of destruction that we will experience. But the science doesn't bear out that this is this runaway climate change. There's nothing we can do. Absolutely not. So getting back to the original part of your question, um, I very much hope not. And that's why my book is called Humanity's Moment, because this is our moment to redeem ourselves as a species, to really step up and live into that custodianship role that we know that we can take. And inherently, I don't believe that humanity is doomed or we're destined to kill each other and the rest of the planet. I don't think that's the case, but it really is an emergency. And we really, really do need to be approaching it from the perspective of understanding that any little bit of delay, further delay is just going to be making things worse. You also write about this need to develop an alternative or a different relationship with the earth and, and a new dialogue to develop that relationship. And I suppose what you're talking about is this move from exploitation and to the word that you use as custodians. Is that the path we need to take? Look, I think we can do that. And I and the beauty of that is that this isn't new. Indigenous people all over the world understand this relationship of that we are a part of nature and nature is a part of us. And if we take care of nature, it will provide us with what we need. But obviously in large-scale industrialised societies, we've lost the way. The amount of consumerism that goes on, the resource waste, obviously we need to get our consumption in check. And so we've, we've basically moved beyond what's sustainable. And so we need to stop and have a think about that, particularly in Western countries where we overconsume, we we really take more than our fair share and it's at the expense of other people um, from developing countries, but also from the natural world as well. So I, I do take heart in realising that this is not a new concept. This is actually just ancient wisdom, but we need to apply it to our contemporary modern industrialised societies. But um, something I do cover in my book is, is really I, I um, provide a bit of an overview of the technological advances that have come about. So this clean energy revolution is entirely doable and that was a really exciting chapter to write because I realised that everything that we need to do this actually ex exists already. The, the thing that's missing is political will. And so that brings us back down to the power of the individual. And here in Australia, we just saw the results of the federal election where we saw um, a real social tipping point. We saw people get behind community independence, um, the minor parties like the Green Party, and people basically saying we do not want to continue to uh, get behind a government with such a, a pro-fossil fuel agenda. Now, we still have really major challenges in this country around that, so I'm not saying it's a done deal, but what I am saying is that when enough people actually get behind uh, candidates that reflect their values, things can change. And that gives me real hope because effectively we're talking about this is how political change happens. It comes about from either providing or removing the social licence for certain activities to happen in our society. And if we start to get behind people who are trying to implement change in our political systems, then that becomes a really powerful way of shifting things. And so it won't happen overnight, but it is happening here in Australia. It's happening elsewhere in the world as well. And this is where I really feel that there is a real sense of hope, that sometimes there can be this sense of inertia and this sense that, we can't do anything. There, is a, there are all these entrenched systems. But maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe people want us to feel that way and feel disempowered. 
Um, but I'm hoping that many Australians are also feeling that sort of sense of renewed optimism that people like myself are feeling, which is that things can change. And yes, there will be destruction because of the amount of carbon that's already in the atmosphere. So things will get worse before it gets better. But we are actually the generation that will effectively determine that the path that humanity takes, that's huge. And that's an incredibly meaningful uh, endeavour to be a part of as well. If you stop and think about how profound this moment is in so many ways, and it isn't just from the scientific perspective, as I've said um, repeatedly, I, I actually don't think climate change is a scientific issue anymore. It's a cultural and social issue. It's a political issue. And so this is why I really feel that engaging people in a broader conversation, more of a cultural conversation about the things that we value as a society, then we start to see really major shift that will be intergenerational because we are now the generation that is going to steer or not this move into a sustainable, um, if we finally learn to live sustainably on this planet. And imagine if we could do that. I mean, how redeeming would that be for humanity to actually step up to this moment and say, yes, we're going to be part of that. And so effectively, that comes back down to choosing how you want to show up in this moment. Are we too desensitised? Are we too immersed in the comforts that we know and embrace and don't want to let go of, what you call consumed by greed, ignorance and hatred? Are we too consumed, too involved in that to dig ourselves out of this hole that we've created? Yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, I think everybody falls prey to some of those things from time to time. But ultimately, I think living in Australia for these last few years, we've seen climate change come crashing through our front doors. If everyone can think back to the, the Black Summer bushfires uh, where our cities were choked in smoke, I don't think I know anyone who wasn't impacted in some way or another, whether they were just holed up at home because the air quality outside was toxic or they had to flee from their homes or, or the catastrophic flooding we've seen on the East Coast this year. So climate change is here, whether we like it or not, and I think it's starting to disrupt our comfort in ways that have become part of our lived experience. And so whether we like it or not, whether we even believe it or not or understand it or not, climate change is happening. I think we're at this point now that things have become so dire that we can't ignore it. We need to get ready for this new future, and this new future is there's a lot of instability in terms of every single season that passes, we're breaking all sorts of new records. Uh, the seasonal forecast at the moment is for renewed wet conditions, um, which could see the continuation of, of uh, severe flooding in parts of southeastern Australia. So as a climate scientist, those things really worry me. But people can join the dots and connect that what they're seeing and what they're living is a part of this new normal of um, a destabilising climate and that we really can't afford to ignore it any longer. So it can feel really overwhelming, but I also came across this research that showed that effectively you only need about 25% of a, of a population to shift the social norm. So once we get on board with these new progressive ideas, most people are sheep and they'll follow, right? Um, it's just That's just the way that society seems to work. And there's some good empirical evidence that shows that only 25% of people are needed to do that. So I do believe in these social tipping points and I think that they, they provide us with opportunities to, to change course. But obviously we do need to have a, a long and deep think about what it means to be human at this moment in time. If we are living just scrolling through our social media feeds and are so desensitised to the world around us, then, then we've really lost the way. 
And I think it's easy to do if you do live in um, urban areas where you might not feel like you're part of an ecosystem in some ways. But I know a lot of people that live in regional areas most certainly do feel like they're part of um, intact ecosystems and are very much in, in tune with, with seasonal cycles. And I think it's just reminding ourselves that this is the system that sustains us. And it's very easy to feel disconnected from those things. And that's why in the book, I try and weave my own personal experiences with my connection with the natural world in there, because ultimately we're just all animals on the planet. My final question to you is, is about redefining our approach, I suppose. You say that we will not see the political response we need to address climate change until we redefine the cultural and social norms that are destroying life on Earth. Now, that's a big, big topic. Um, is this utopian thinking and is this utopia even achievable given human nature's tendency to individual profit and well-being? Absolutely. They're really connected, aren't they? So how we experience the natural world can happen in our gardens, in our backyards, um, in the local environments where we live, and that's where we actually experience it, these shifts in the seasons and, and, the, and the changing um, of the background climate that we live in. Because now all of our weather is occurring on the background of a, a planet that is, you know, 1.2 degrees warmer than it was um, just 100 years ago. So, of course, it's going to be changing, and that's how we see it. Um, I, I fully appreciate that for the average person, it's really hard to get your head around ice sheets and global ocean circulation and all this sort of stuff. It's complex stuff, but that's not how we experience it. But we will experience it in terms of, say, um, a La Nina year, which drenches the east coast of Australia and, and displaces people from their homes um, or drowns your uh, you know, crops. That's how we will experience climate change. It is, it's in these small everyday moments. You know, humans have the ability to course correct. When we're in dangerous territory, we have to realise that we have to shift. So one day we might look back at the large-scale burning of fossil fuels the way we look back at the use of something like asbestos or using mercury for fillings in your teeth and things like that. Just unthinkable. Why did we ever do that? That was just crazy. So I think that we now have, or I know that we now have, more than enough evidence to show that we are literally poisoning the planet, the air that we breathe, and destabilizing our planetary home. And so it might sound lofty and uh, utopian, but it's not. It's actually a matter of survival. And so I do feel that we can actually turn this around if we have the political will. As I said, from a, from a geophysical perspective, from the technical perspective, we can do it. The tools exist. It's just the implementation of these policies. So sometimes I feel that um, people can try and kill off these ideas with cynicism and that sort of thing. And who knows, maybe they're right, but is that actually a helpful way of thinking about it? My feeling is that I would rather be someone that is on the right side of history doing everything that I can to try and stabilise the Earth's climate so that we actually give um, current generations and future generations a chance. I really feel that if we want to do this, we can do this, and this is what the IPCC report basically says, but what is really lagging is the political response to this. And that's something that comes about from... Uh, our social systems, and that's something individuals have a power to influence. So in terms of your vote, you are voting in people that are meant to reflect your values. So that's what I meant by implementation of social license for particular things. So if we decide as a society that we don't want to kill the Great Barrier Reef off, we care about that, that's actually something we don't want to do, um, not just for its tourism value, but it's for its intrinsic value. 
its biodiversity and the 25% of marine life that exists in our coral reef systems, people would just say, collectively, we value that as a society. And so we're going to vote for politicians that are going to try and implement policies that protect those things that we care about. And I guess that's what I'm talking about with this sort of shift. And so I guess collectively, we all need to make decisions about what we want to do here, right? So do we want to protect our planetary home or not? From my perspective as a scientist, I guess I'm here to say is that how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. It's one of the headline statements from the IPCC, but it's really this social political movement. And I'm hoping that this book helps fuel that social movement and add to the other voices that have been there for some time. I'm coming through as a scientist involved in the very latest report where there are some there's been some real strengthening of the science. And so I'm here to basically convey that sense of urgency to people and then they can choose what they want to do with that information. But as I've said, yes, it is a it is an overwhelming moment in, in many ways, but it's also a, uh, a galvanising moment that could be a real change in the course of our history. And, and in my book, I do look at those past social movements to basically show people that this is this is the story of human history. We basically decide whether or not it's okay to have slaves. Is it okay for women to vote? Is it okay for all these different things, right? So we're basically asking people to now make that same call about are we absolutely going to destabilise the planet and leave it in an um, uninhabitable uh, state? I would argue that most people wouldn't value that. And so our job is to then remove the social licence for the continued destruction of our planet. Joel Gurgis, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I've been talking to Joelle Gerges about her new book, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. It's published by Black Ink, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.